This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. Hey, everybody, welcome. This is Taj Tashambe with you with another episode of conversations about race, reflection, and action. And this week, we're joined by a very special guest. Yet again, each week keeps getting better. We have a wonderful, talented soul, Alicia Garza from Black Futures Lab and also a co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement. Alicia, how are you today? I'm feeling good today. How about you? Good, good. I'm feeling, I'm feeling blessed. I mean, the sun is shining. I'm alive. Yes. <laughs> and you know, that's how I like to start my day. It's just, you know, with a moment of gratitude and acknowledgement, you know, just, just to be present, just to be present. So you know, I appreciate you giving us some time out of your busy schedule during this amazing, wonderful time period of, of just existence. But there's so much going on in our world right now, right? And you have been a vocal leader in just equality and justice, you know, and we appreciate you for the work that you've led over the last several years. And people are really excited on our platform to hear your story. And we know you're a Bay Area native, and this series has really captivated audiences around those who have come from the East Bay, the Bay Area in general, and who have ties to Oakland and the Oakland community. And we wanted to get beyond talking about sports and talking about things that we're identifying with and really open up the floodgates with people that are really influencing our culture and really making an impact across the world. And you're one of those people. And we just, we're so thrilled to have you join us today. And Alicia, we, we want to get to know you. So if, if you don't mind, give us a little bit of your background. I mean, we know who you are, but tell us your, your story. What's been your journey to this point to becoming this world-renowned activist and leader of change in our, in our world? Hmm. Well, thank you for the question. And again, thank you for having me. You know, I'm born and raised in the Bay Area. Um, I grew up in Marin County, and I've lived in Oakland for the last 20 plus years. I'm not going to tell you exactly how many in <laughs> those 20, but I've been here for a while, and Oakland is where I call home. Um, I first started getting involved in social justice work when I was 12. I got really involved in the fight for reproductive rights and reproductive justice. And I did that because, you know, I grew up for the first part of my life um, with a single mother. And she was somebody who, you know, was in a relationship when she got pregnant with me. She thought they were getting married and then the relationship dissolved before I was born. And so very quickly she had to learn, you know, how to make it and how to make ends meet. And, you know, my earliest memories of my mom 
are those where we were sitting at the kitchen table together and my mom would be up late at night with one of those calculators, you know, with the tape <laughs> and there'd be bills everywhere. And she would just sit up all night and try to figure out how to make ends meet. And, you know, my mom talked to me a lot when I was a kid about sex and we never, ever, ever, ever minced words. And she used to say to me, sex makes babies and babies are expensive. <laughs> and I thought that was the best kind of education possible. But what was happening in my school district was very different. At the time when I got involved, um, there was a big debate happening. This was um, during the, fush, the first Bush presidency. Mm -hmm. And there was a big fight happening around family values. And what it meant was that there was a struggle between should we offer abstinence only education in schools um, to make sure that we're bringing in those family values or should we offer comprehensive sex health education? Mm -hmm. Well, coming from a single mother who talked to me a lot about sex and who I saw up late at night trying to make ends meet, it seemed ridiculous to me to not be giving young people the tools that they needed to make decisions that were right for them right. so that they, you know, would end up in situations that they felt like they had more control over. And frankly, not talking to young people about sex when young people were having sex seemed counterproductive to me. <laughs> and so when there was an issue that came up in my school district about whether or not to offer contraception in school nurses offices, um, I got very, very involved. I started to dive into peer education and um, diving into, you know, advocacy around young people and making sure that we had all the tools available to us to make decisions and to live the kinds of lives that we determined on our own. And that really started, I think, years and years of activism. Wow. I did that work for a very long time and then got really politicized in college and started, when I came home, um, I started organizing in East and West Oakland with a group that at that time was called People United for a Better Oakland. Mm -hmm. It was um, the first term of Jerry Brown's uh, mayorship and there was uh, a big wave of gentrification that was coming. It was coming to West Oakland and we were organizing black families around making sure that all of the changes that happened in our community were gonna benefit our community. And it really lit a fire in me. And I've been involved in racial and economic and gender justice fights for a very long time. But that, you know, first, first area in middle school really sparked my interest in making sure that we can build the kind of world where everybody feels safe, where everybody feels like they belong, and where everybody has what they need to live well. Well, that's really helpful. Thank you for giving us some of your background. And it's interesting to hear because so many people have early experiences with their passion and it helps to shape who we become many, many years later. And I'm curious to know, what were some of your early experiences with race? You know, growing up in Marin County, we know Marin County is very polarizing. You have, you have a, a black population there, right? In Marin City, but most of the county we know is very affluent. And, you know, I, I remember years ago, Tupac having an experience in, in Marin County and, and others, right, who have had to deal with police and things of that nature that 
you know, were very po uh, polarizing to the community, the black community that, that is called Marin County home. So give us a little experience of, of your upbringing in Marin County that also helped shape, you know, the work you're doing today. Absolutely. I mean, Marin is a very interesting place. And the first thing that people think about when they think about Marin is wealth and affluence. And right. it makes sense to me. There's so much of Marin. It's so beautiful, right? There's open space and there is a lot of decadence and opulence. But there is also very much um, pockets, right, of working class people who are trying to make ends meet every single day. Right. And for me, you know, I grew up the first part of my life in the Canal District, which was heavily Black and heavily Latino at that time, definitely working class. And, you know, my first experience with race that I can remember is um, in elementary school. I had a teacher, I won't name her, but I'll always remember this teacher. And, you know, I was a really good student. I taught myself to read at three years old. And so, you know, I certainly wasn't sitting in the back of the class, but I was one of few black students um, in my classroom. And I was aware of that. I was definitely aware of being one of the few um, all throughout my schooling. I don't think I had a black teacher until I went to college. Mm. And I remember, um, I think this was in fifth grade. Uh, I had a teacher who walked by my desk. We were doing like a, you know, a free time activity. And sure. she picked up my hand and she said, oh my God, the palms of your hand are so light compared mm. to the rest of your skin. Are, are all y'all like that? Huh. Wow. Right. Wow. And I was in fifth grade and I went home and I talked to my mom and my mom said, what kind of... <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so that started a real um, early process, I think, of my mm. mom talking to me about race and talking to me about how people would expect me to, you know, not be able to achieve as much, not be able to go as far. And so I had to be better and do better and work twice as hard mm. because nobody was going to give me anything. I was going to have to, you know, work twice as hard as everybody else. And then in an affluent place like Marin, she really wanted to make clear to me, um, you are not affluent like these other children, <laughs> right? I am out here working three jobs for you to be able to go to school and you are gonna go to school and you're gonna get your education and don't worry about what these people say. Right. I think, you know, other experiences include, you know, being also in middle school and my mom was trying to get me into gifted and talented education. They were called mm -hmm. gate classes at that time. And even though I was testing off the charts, um, the teachers wouldn't actually let me in the class. Mm -hmm. They didn't believe, right, that I was actually achieving in that way. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, from a very young age, I understood that Black people in particular um, face these kinds of barriers and that you know, it kind of doesn't matter what we do. Again, I was an exceptional student. I didn't get into trouble. I didn't get into fights, but I was one that would be singled out um, in various ways for either um, Black History Month celebrations, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or, you know, accusations of things that I never actually did, but because I was one of the only Black students, it was really hard. Um, to demonstrate, right, that um, that I was like everybody else, and in fact, you know, at the head of my class. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because <clears throat> my upbringing was very similar. Growing up in Oakland, 
Okay. We lived in the hills mm -hmm. and I was in a single parent household as well. My mother was a police officer mm -hmm. and, you know, people got it twisted because we were black and lived in the hills. Like there was some sense of privilege. That's like, right. no, my mom was just trying to keep me safe. Exactly. You know? And I think about now looking, looking back, <clears throat> how fortunate that I was to, to have someone of not only my village, but just to be someone insulated. You know, to sometimes be in communities where the perception of which you have some type of privilege, but yet and still the same types of racial discrimination and injustices and the lack of feeling welcomed That's right. exists as much as it would in any other environment or, or more so. So I find that to be, to be interesting in your story as well. So I'm curious, just to segue a little bit, who were some of your influences growing up? You know that you were inspired by who were activists or leaders you know in, in our world or locally who were some of your inspirations that led you on the path potentially that you are on now to sure. help you in your journey sure so in particular my mom was a big influence on me growing up um you know she was the kind of person who could literally do everything Mm -hmm. um, my mom drove trucks for UPS. She worked in the stockroom at Macy's. Um, you know, my mom helped to grow uh, my parents' business when she uh, got married um, later on in my life. And so, you know, my mom was the kind of person who she really embodied this idea that anything you put your mind to, you can achieve. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, she also made it very clear to me that, um, you know, you do your best in everything you can and um, you do it with kindness. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I really take from my mom and she passed away a couple of years ago, but it's interesting that the things that I love and appreciate about her are the things that her community loved and appreciated about her too. My mom was somebody who you could always go to if you had a problem. She would never, ever judge you. She would just try to help you work it out. <laughs> she was the kind of person who was always smiling and she had an award-winning smile. And she always made people feel comfortable, feel loved and feel welcomed. She was a big fan of handwritten thank you notes. She always would get like a little tiny gift for somebody if she was just thinking about them. And she was the kind of person that made you feel like you belonged in this world. Mm -hmm. And so she's a major inspiration for me. And when I was younger, my mom, when I was being bad, she would say to me things like, would you kiss your mother with that mouth? <laughs> and it's little uh -huh. phrases like that, that I keep with me, even in my activism, in sure. my organizing work, you know, I try to think about, are you being a good person? Are mm -hmm. you showing up with integrity? Um, are you making, are you the kind of person that makes people feel welcome wherever they're from and however they get there? And I really try to live up to that. That's the other cool. person who inspires me um, is Harriet Tubman. And mm. I know she'd been in the news <laughs> for the last 24 hours. I'm not going to yes. go all the way there, but prayers up for okay. our brother Kanye. You can, you can if you want to. That's, that's what this platform is for. <laughs> Listen, I'm not I'll, even I'll, sure I'm ready to process it, but I'm just going <laughs> to say prayers up to our brother and we wish him well. Right. Um, Harriet Tubman did free lots of enslaved people. <laughs> and one of the things that inspires me so much about her is that she endured incredible hardship. 
And the hardest parts of her life were not actually about getting free and freeing others. Um, the hardest parts of her life in many ways were about the heartbreaks that she endured along the way. Uh, the first time she escaped and got free, um, she left her husband behind. Mm -hmm. And she went back to go get her husband and found that he had remarried and started a new family. Right. You can only imagine, right, that kind of heartbreak, but she kept going. Um, she went back to get one of her siblings who was actually too scared um, to get free and she kept going. And so she gives me that kind of hope and resilience. And whenever I'm feeling like I can't do it or I'm too scared to do it, I just think about my patron saint, Harriet Tubman. I'm like, look, if she can do it, I can do it. <laughs> Absolutely. No, Alicia, your, your inspirations are not only inspiring to you, but just listening to you speak about your mother is inspiring and you know, may she rest in peace. And Harriet Tubman, as you mentioned, I want to see her on a $20 bill. I hope that happens. Me too. <laughs> we, we need to see some of our figures being recognized in ways that they haven't been recognized previously. Right. And, and thinking about pushing it forward, pushing the envelope, I, I coined a, a phrase many, many years ago, and it was something to the effect of, pushing the envelope is your birthright mm. and your birth responsibility. Mm. So our generation, right, to carry it forward, carry the baton, our leg of the race, like we're, we're in the race now. Yeah. And, you know, looking at our world, our country, how polarizing this time period is, let's jump into some, some heavier, heavier topics, because I think we framed who you are and what you stand for, the compassion that you have, you know, for society and equality. What can we do right now? You know, looking at what are we in, Late July, this next four or five months are some of the most important four or five months in our lifetime. That's right. What can we do as not only a country, but more specific to black and brown communities? What are we supposed to be doing right now, Alicia, mm -hmm. to make sure our country doesn't go further down the path it is on in terms of being divisive, in terms of being completely off track in terms of how we are communicating, not only to ourselves, but to the rest of the world through COVID-19, through our upcoming elections, through everything that we can talk about under the sun, what would be some of your recommendations right now? And through your work with Black Futures Labs, what can we do to really start to shift our, our thinking, our behaviors in a very, very compelling way in the next four or five months to change the outcomes that we would like to have going into 2021 and beyond? Yeah, great questions. So, you know, when you were starting to talk about the state of our country, um, you know, John Lewis filled my spirit. Mm -hmm. um, Congressman John Lewis was an incredible freedom fighter and somebody who arrested over 40 times mm -hmm. in the course of his life, fighting for our right to be able to participate in the decisions that impacted our lives. Mm -hmm. And he fought for all of us to live equal and dignified lives. And, you know, we are in trouble as a country and we're in bad trouble. Um, what's happening in this country right now is so incredibly divisive and it's very scary. 
I mean, I lay awake sometimes thinking to myself, is this it? Like, is this what we've fought for? And the only answer I can come up with is no. And that's why we have to fight harder. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Congressman Lewis, he talked a lot about making good trouble. And I think that that's the first thing that we have to continue to commit ourselves to do is to make good trouble so that we can get rid of the bad trouble. And the bad trouble, just to be very specific, is that we have a president and an administration that is taking us backwards. In fact, I feel like we're going back into the dark ages. I was watching television last night and, you know, watching reports about um, what's happening in Portland right now, where our president has authorized literally secret police um, to stop protests and to um, infringe upon people's First Amendment rights to resist unjust laws, right? That's the whole reason that we have a constitution. That's the whole reason that we have a Bill of Rights. It was supposedly designed around the idea that if there are unjust actions that are happening in this nation, that you should have the right to push back against those things. That is the fact of democracy. And Congressman John Lewis really upheld that. And so I think in his spirit, one way for us to make good trouble is to vote. And I'm not somebody who believes that, you know, you have to vote because your ancestors died for the right to vote. No, Um, I believe that we have to vote because it is one of the primary ways that we will be able to change what is happening in this country short term. Um, But of course, right, there are a lot of barriers right now to being able to participate. Um, All across the country, there are laws being passed to limit our ability to engage in the decisions that impact our lives. Uh, This is, you know, this will be the second election cycle where Black people, in particular Black voters, um, are, you know, trying to access the vote um, under, you know, withering protections from the Voting Rights Act. And in fact, um, so many of those protections have been whittled away um, that it makes it close to impossible, right, to hold states accountable for keeping people from exercising their right to vote. Congressman Lewis, um, before he died, uh, you know, tried to help steward a voting rights bill through Congress uh, in order to re-enfranchise of Black people and other people who have been left out and left behind, um, try to enfranchise us to be able to make decisions on our own behalf. And I can tell you that Bill is still sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk. It's been 200 days. And, you know, here we are facing one probably the most important election cycle in my generation and millions and millions of people will not are in danger of not being able to access their right to participate so Mm -hmm. if you want to do something about that number one commit yourself to vote and get 10 people to vote with you if you're worried about going to a polling place we totally get in the time of the rona and miss rona ain't no joke so i would not mess with her but what you can do is you can register to vote absentee 
Um, you can make sure that the Secretary of State in your state um, is upholding the rights of everybody in this in this state in particular um, to register absentee. And we know our governor um, has said that that is going to be a mandate. So that's important. But now let's spread it out beyond California. Reach out to your friends and family. Talk to secretaries of states in other states and make sure that they are upholding our right to participate. The other thing that you can do um, is get organized. So, you know, this is a moment of incredible opportunity amidst incredible crisis and challenge. And every time we've faced crisis like this in this nation, it's only been because everyday people were willing to take the first step that we were able to change things. I often say that, you know, uh, 50 plus years ago, right? Uh, people talked to some people talked about how if we ended segregation in this country, it was going to devolve into a chaotic mess. But actually what happened, right, is that people resisted that. And that was a necessary and needed change. I think we can all agree, right, that ending segregation and ending exclusion um, made this country better. And so we're in another moment like that where we get to end unjust laws and fight to usher in new ones that include everyone. Um, one of the things you can do if you're like, how do I get involved, is you can get involved with us at the Black Futures Lab and at the Black to the Future Action Fund. We work to make Black communities powerful in politics, and we need everybody to join us. We are fighting hard right now, especially this week, um, on two fronts. We're trying to make sure that the Senate passes the HEROES Act, which is a relief and recovery bill for millions of Americans who are being adversely impacted um, by this pandemic, whether it be through a loss of employment, whether it be unsafe working conditions, whether it be being protected from evictions. And we are fighting hard to insert new protections in this bill that in particular protect Black communities since we have been disproportionately impacted and attacked, right, by greed and by a lack of oversight and transparency and accountability, whether it be from, you know, being classified as essential workers to making sure that if you're somebody who has to work in this pandemic, that you have the things that you need to keep you safe, or whether it means protecting your right to keep a roof over your head while the economy is in flux. Um, you can sign on to our COVID-19 plan for relief and recovery for Black America by going to black the number two, the future.org. And we also need you to send a video to Congress to make sure that they come back and they do their jobs and they pass this bill and make sure that Americans get relief and recovery. Finally, if you're not sure how to register to vote or get activated to vote, you can come to us at blackfutureslab.org and we will get you registered. You can also um, sign on to our Black Agenda for 2020. We have done a ton of work to talk to Black communities across the country about what we experience every day in the economy, in our democracy, in our society, and what we want to see done about enduring challenges that face our nation. We turned that information from the largest survey of Black people in America in 155 years into a Black agenda that we are now getting organized around. I can tell you that there's 50,000 people who have signed on to the agenda and pledged to use this agenda to vote, but we need many, many more. We want this agenda to be the platform for the Democratic Party. We want this 
agenda to be a legislative roadmap from City Hall all the way up to Congress. And so if you want to join us, again, you can visit us at blackfuturislab.org. Those are some concrete steps that you can take right now to make good trouble. Thank you. Now that's that's what I'm talking about. See, those are those are actionable things because this this series again is called Conversations About Race, Reflections and Actions. So that's what I'm we want to get our viewers tips, pointers, and direction on where to go to lead the conversation and the experience, right? So let me ask a question about the black agenda for a second. So what what does that comprise of? Just give us a few, you know, tips, snapshot aspects of what the agenda is and what drives the agenda? Is that from the survey that you pulled to generate the results? Or give us some, some details on what the agenda contains. Absolutely. Well, as I mentioned, the Black Agenda is a legislative roadmap for how it is that we start to make Black Lives Matter in our economy, in our democracy, and in our society. Our work at the Black Futures Lab and the Black to the Future Action Fund is to make Black communities powerful in politics so that we can be powerful in every aspect of our lives. And we believe that Black communities deserve to be powerful like all communities deserve to be powerful. Mm -hmm. And so our work has been to really uh, make clear what steps need to be taken right now in order to make that happen. The Black Agenda looks at how we make Black people powerful in the economy, in our legal system, in our education system, in housing, in healthcare, in the environment, all the areas that you can possibly think of. And what it does is it, it takes the data from the Black Census Project, which I mentioned is the largest survey of Black people in America in 155 years. And it takes the things that most agree on in terms of solutions. Mm -hmm. And this is a platform and an agenda that we think needs to guide conversations, like I said, and policymaking from City Hall to Congress, we believe that in order to make Black people powerful, we need to make sure that we are designing policies that are race forward and not race neutral. We can't close racial gaps if we don't acknowledge that there's racism in our laws and our policies, ways that our communities are organized. We believe that government must be held accountable to resolve problems. We don't believe that, you know, the way to address the challenges in our communities is to pass it off to the private sector or corporations. Um, we believe that, you know, the whole point of government is to be accountable to our communities. And so when we have to address challenges in our communities, we need to be in relationship to the body that is accountable to us, elected by us, um, and connected to us. Um, and then finally, we believe that the Black agenda is a progressive agenda. Um, and we are unabashed about saying that. You know, right now, um, this country is being run um, by a consensus, right? A conservative consensus that essentially is taking us backwards when we need to move forward. And when it comes to Black communities, you know, that consensus has not done us any good. <laughs> and so for, for us, this Black agenda is an organizing point. It's a rallying cry. And it's also a compass for how it is that we change the rules that have been rigged in our communities and bring forward new rules and new practices that can um, better equalize the playing field and actually do the work to make Black Lives Matter, not just um, in protest, but in practice and in policy. Thank you for, thank you for touching on that point, because I think we, I do want to ask you about your 
co-foundership of Black Lives Matter in a moment. But more importantly, who else are you partnering with right now with Black Futures Lab? And what other entities are engaged? Because it's going to take a village, you know, to essentially create the snowball effect, if you will, right? And the tidal wave that we need for this type of endeavor to be ultimately as successful as it needs to be. So give us a, a glimpse as to who else you're partnering with, whether that be from the private sector or the public sector or nonprofit, et cetera. So we have an understanding of who you are building an alliance with out there in the world. Absolutely. Well, we're working with everybody and anybody who wants to work with us. And so first and foremost, our organization, we deeply invest in Black-led grassroots organizations across the country. Right now, we are registering voters, educating voters, and motivating and activating voters in nine states across the country. We're expanding the number of Black people who are um, participating, and we are reaching out into components of Black communities that are often neglected and left behind. Um, so we are in California, we're in Florida, Georgia, Nevada, Wisconsin, Texas, Illinois, Louisiana, Alabama, and we are doing work on the ground there um, and supporting partners there like uh, Ubuntu Village in New Orleans, Friends and Families of Louisiana's Incarcerated Children, uh, New Georgia Project in Georgia, New Florida Majority, uh, Equity and Transformation in Chicago. There's such a, a wide range of beautiful organizations. Uh, transgender advocates, knowledgeable and empowered in Alabama, an incredible organization that is organizing black trans women and getting folks civically and politically engaged. Um, so first and foremost, we work with grassroots organizations across the country. We also work with larger coalitions like the Movement for Black Lives, which is comprised of you know, more than 100 organizations across the nation um, and has introduced right, um, a uh, intention to uh, move a bill um, through Congress that would address some of the challenges facing our communities right now. It's called the BREATHE Act. Um, we also have been and working with the, the sports industry, artists, entertainers, um, to use their platforms for politics and not just products. And so, you know, we are um, helping to work with the WNBA around their Say Her Name campaign, and they're really working hard to make sure that we are infusing, right, social justice into the sports space, making sure that we're not leaving uh, women who, um, have been killed either by police or by intimate partners out of the conversation about how black lives need to matter. Um, we are also in conversation with the NBA, right? Um, helping to make sure that the kind of education around what Black Lives Matter is and what it means um, is widespread, right? And that we can introduce um, fans, right? To that history and to that knowledge and use those platforms to get people politically engaged. We think that's important now. Um, also had the great opportunity to work with several artists and entertainers. Um, shout out to Common and Alicia Keys, um, who definitely have been using their platforms, uh, whether it be the versus battle between Alicia Keys and John Legend, where she shouts out the Black Futures Lab. She shouts out a number of organizations that are doing important work to engage our communities politically. 
or whether it be working with Common around an event for Breonna Taylor, who um, still all of these days later, her killers have um, not been uh, held accountable. And in fact, they still have jobs. Uh, Breonna Taylor was killed in her sleep. She was an essential worker who was, uh, became the victim of a no-knock raid and she lost her life. She was murdered. Um, and so we've been working with a range of folk to be able to not only spread awareness, but help people get involved anywhere and everywhere they are. I always say, you, know, you may not be somebody who wants to be out in the streets, but there's a lane and a purpose for you. So find your lane, get in it and do it really well. And we're here to help you figure out what that is. And we're here to help activate you. That's what's up. No, I appreciate that. And since you mentioned sports and you're talking to a professional sports team, I'd be yeah. remiss if I didn't say, well, we want to partner with you guys as well. Let's ride. <laughs> because, I mean, that's why we had you on today. We wanted to make sure we have an opportunity to engage in this dialogue and show up and show out. So, I mean, we're definitely going to offline with your team because yeah. we're interested in, unless you live in Oakland. So yeah. it makes no sense for you not to have a partnership with your hometown team. That's who, what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's all about this type of work, by the way. So people are really excited to know not only all the things you've done right now to establish Black Futures Lab and all the work you're doing across the country to galvanize and lead in areas that need your leadership. But there's a curiosity, Alicia, around Black Lives Matter, because that is that is completely polarized our country, you know, to a play and the world to a place of now you have professional sports teams. The NBA is going to have Black Lives Matter, you know, painted on basketball courts. I and know, I saw it days, last night. It's amazing. Yes. <laughs> and, and we have a few surprises up our sleeve as well. So, so stay okay. tuned. Stay tuned for that from the <laughs> and from Major League Baseball. So give us some background on how you co-founded that organization and what you think the future holds for Black Lives Matter. And now it's become a coined phrase, right? I mean, I can go on to any social media platform and get an emoji that, you know, holds up Black Lives Matter. We love to see that. We love that it has been embraced by, I, I keep saying the, the term zeitgeist, because to me, that's what this is. We are in the middle of, of our zeitgeist and pop culture. But beyond that, give us some background with you and your, and your co-founders how you, you ladies developed this entity that has now become more than an entity. It is, it is, a, it is a part of our fabric of, of our nation. And I know that you've, you've moved to Black Futures Lab and other endeavors from, from the day-to-day -day aspects of Black Lives Matter, but just give us some background, if you could, on what inspired you and your co-founders to begin the movement and what your thoughts are today of the work that's being done and, and how the world has embraced uh, what you started many years ago? Sure. I mean, Black Lives Matter was started in 2013 after George Zimmerman was acquitted in the murder of Trayvon Martin. This actually wasn't a police killing, it was a vigilante killing, not unlike uh, the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, right, in Georgia. And, you know, for me, 
the reason that I got activated, I'd been following that case for a long time. It came onto my radar um, because I saw actually the Dream Defenders, right, who were protesting um, in Florida after Trayvon was killed uh, because the district attorney had refused initially to press charges against this grown man um, who murdered a child in cold blood. And so I followed the trial and I, I got pretty obsessed with it. At that time, I thought, you know, this isn't 1956. It seems so clear. This was a kid who, you know, went to the store to get snacks on an intermission during a football game right. and, or whatever kind of game. It was a sports game. Right. I don't know. I'm not, you know. He went to go get snacks during an intermission in a sports game and didn't come home, right? And here it is, this man who self-appoints himself as a neighborhood watch person um, mm -hmm. gets away with murder. I watched the trial. I watched as all the news stations were calling it the Trayvon Martin trial, but Trayvon was dead. Right. He wasn't on trial. He was dead. I watched as, you know, the, the prosecution like, really um, tried to demonize his family, right. um, tried to demonize his friends, tried to demonize Trayvon. And that to me really was the clearest demonstration of how race operates in America, mm -hmm. that you can be killed by a vigilante and be put on trial uh, in death um, if you're black. And when the acquittal came down, um, I still didn't believe it. And I was deeply angry, deeply sad. I have a younger brother who, you know, is not unlike Trayvon. He grew up in Marin County, he's six feet tall. He's totally a sweet, sweet, wonderful person. And he's black growing up in an area um, where black people are feared and considered to be criminals before any other questions. And I remember that night I called Patrice. Patrice and I have been friends for a very long time. We've been organizing for 20 plus years um, before Black Lives Matter, right? And she and I um, grieved together. And I can say that, you know, Black Lives Matter comes from a love letter to Black people that I wrote on Facebook. I call it a love letter. I'm waking up in the middle of the night, the night after the verdict, and um, wanting to send a love note to Black people in, in that moment. Um, there's so much about these kinds of cases where we get blamed for conditions that we didn't create. Um, and I wanted us to feel deeply that our lives matter that um, we don't deserve to be murdered in cold blood, whether it be going to the store uh, like Trayvon or whether it be asking for help in the middle of the night like Renisha McBride, whether it be being stopped at a, a traffic, you know, during a traffic stop and, um, you know, the result being that you um, end up hung, right, in a jail cell. Um, we are not to blame for these conditions. Um, mm -hmm. but we certainly can be a catalyst for change. And so, you know, myself and Patrice and Opal, right, got together 
And we started to notice, right? Like I Black Lives Matter uh, on Facebook, Patrice had it on, on Twitter. And we started to notice that it was carrying in a particular way. We didn't have like a strategic plan. We didn't have a business plan. We weren't like, okay, here's how all this is gonna go. There was no brand, you know? We just, out of emotion, um, you know, started to talk about this in a real way. And we saw that people were talking about it online. And we wanted people to be able to do that in a way where they could make sense of why this was happening, but also not just post about it, but do something about it offline in real time. Right. Opal helped to create all the social assets for the um, Black Lives Matter. She created our website and our Facebook uh, Facebook uh, pages, and at that time, Tumblr pages, right, for people to share stories. And, um, you know, it really took off for a year. We actually kind of worked in silence. We um, gathered people around important conversations. We put important information online. We connected people online so that they could do things together offline. And I think um, in 2014, when Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, um, was really when this took off. Um, and I can say that, um, you know, Patrice and, and our friend Darnell Moore um, organized a freedom ride to Ferguson to bring black journalists, uh, black media, black artists, black healers, black organizers, black legal support to Ferguson because um, once again, right, what we were seeing on television wasn't reflecting what was actually happening in that community. And, you know, those rebellions, I think, have changed, um, have certainly changed our country and our world. I think we didn't know at that time that Black Lives Matter was going to become right. the umbrella term for everything that's happening Can right now. That? Can you believe like that it's happened? Bizarre. It's but, I do, <laughs> but I do think it's important just to recognize that you know, so much of how we learn about movements and how we learn about change centers around one or two individuals as opposed to the collective action of so many. Right. If it wasn't for the Dream Defenders, if it wasn't for Black Lives Matter, if it wasn't for Black Youth Project 100, if it wasn't for all of these really incredible um, actors and organizations, um, I don't think we'd be seeing the same kind of um, um, energy that we're seeing right now. Folks from Action St. Louis and um, Hands Up United, right? There's so many hands that have helped to kind of usher forward this era of rebellion and resistance and um, renewal. And so, you know, I just like to say to people, you know, I'm honored and humbled to be the smallest piece of this era of movement. Um, but I, I also feel like we have to um, not look for the Martin Luther Kings, right? Mm. We're, that's not who we are. We are regular people who have been trying to make change in our communities for a long time. And we, we help to inspire other people to do the same. And um, is a movement that was handed to us. We didn't start it. Um, you know, um, I think this movement started when Black people were brought here at the bottoms of boats and chains, right? We're just helping to usher forward um, our time in this movement. And um, 
I'm happy to say that, you know, whatever happens moving forward, I will know and I will be able to tell my children and my family members when they ask, well, what were you doing at that pivotal point in history? I'll be like, I was fighting like hell for all of us. <laughs> and, and I think everybody here watching has that same choice. And you, you don't have to think about who you would have been um, you know, in Selma or, you know, in Montgomery, you can think about who you want to be right now and what side of history you want to stand on. And I can guarantee you that standing on the right side of history right now will be a story that you'll be proud to tell many, many years from now. Wow. Well, I was going to ask you for a final thought, but I think you just dropped the mic and gave it to us with that. And let, let me give you a final thought for myself, because I just want to tell you that we are so proud of you for the work that you've led, not only in the last seven years, because a lot of people make the mistake when they see a person that becomes successful in thinking that their success has some type of way just ha happen overnight, like a spark plug, right? You mentioned you started this journey at 12 years old, you know, and yeah. so you have a long, yeah, many decades. We won't, we won't tell our viewers how old you may be. You know, because you, yeah, you, <laughs> you are, you are seasoned in this game of life, and we appreciate you for sharing your journey with us and giving us a moment of your time. And before we leave, you know, please remind our viewers as to where we can find more information out about you, Black Futures Lab and other things that you are focused on right now during this critical time of, you know, July 2020, yeah. going into the fall, remind our viewers where they need to tune in for more information and the work you are doing. Absolutely. So um, if you want to be a part of the change that we are trying to usher forward, you can visit us at blackfutureslab.org. Um, you can also go to black the number two, thefuture.org, to help us impact what's happening in Congress, to get involved, to get registered to vote, and to learn about all of these issues that are facing our country right now. If you want to learn more about me and how this movement came to be, but even bigger than that, um, some of the lessons that I've learned and the lessons that I'm still learning and the lessons that I think um, will be helpful for us in this next phase of resistance and rebellion, you can check out my book and it's coming out in October and it's on pre-sale now and it's called The Purpose of Power, How We Come Together When We Fall Apart. And I hope that it's an offering that you can use. You can get it anywhere you get your books, but I highly recommend um, any kind of independent bookstore, including Marcus Books, the yeah. oldest black bookstore in the country that's located right here in Oakland. Call mm -hmm. them up, tell them you want to get a copy of my book and come and join us. We got a lot of fights to fight and I believe that we're going to win. Alicia, thank you so much for your time today. Everyone, please support her, The Purpose of Power, coming in October, and visit more information on the A's in our platform, athletics.com slash BLM. We have a whole landing page dedicated to the movement, dedicated to this series of conversations. And we're going to be in touch with your people, Alicia, because we want to work with you. We really want to be a partner. I would love it. Shout out to the home team. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.